This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I would like to have these rules that we have a first round of uh, 10 minutes each uh, for the uh, for the for panelists, and then we can have some questions and possibly another round uh, for each of them. Um, the order that has been suggested uh, will be to, uh, to start with the Richard Blackhurst, then Richard Steinberg, then Bob, and then Tian. Okay? That's um, uh, Richard. Okay. Oh, thank you very much. And again, I appreciate very, very much the invitation uh, to the conference. What I'd like to do first is to briefly go through uh, a description of where the negotiations currently stand. And since there are photocopies of the PowerPoint presentation. Uh, they've been on the table since this morning. I think I can go fairly quickly. Uh, and this is, uh, everything in this presentation is based on remarks that have been made by the Director General. Okay. So the first group uh, was, uh, comments were made about three weeks ago in a speech in um, India that he gave. And he stressed, first of all, that there are some, in what he felt were quite important offers that are already on the table. The details and specifics are yet to be negotiated, but there are some interesting things on the table, including uh, elimination of export subsidies by 2013 with the special accelerated uh, removal for cotton. And that, and this is, I think, unusual uh, in GATT WTO history, that the three biggest trading entities have agreed to do the biggest cuts in terms of reducing uh, all kinds of subsidies that distort trade. Second, they've agreed on the Swiss formula for cutting tariffs, uh, where high tariffs are uh, subject to uh, larger cuts. The third is that the services negotiations have gotten underway with the plurilateral exchange of request lists. I can tell you that from some of the people that uh, that I still know that are in the services division and the secretariat, they are not tremendously optimistic about this approach to doing something meaningful in the services area. Uh, and then there's the aid for trade package. Uh, and the details are left to be negotiated, but apparently the rich countries have made a commitment to provide uh, resource transfers to help developing countries uh, deal with um, supply side constraints. Now, the focus of the negotiations today, and this is uh, it, it continues despite the postscript uh, that's at the very end, are the three, what um, Lamy describes as a triangle. And it's a, for him it's a double triangle. There are three particular issues and there are three particular groups of countries or countries involved in each of these. One is, all right, one is the size of reduction of agricultural domestic subsidies. And I put domestic in bold to distinguish it from the export subsidies uh, where the elimination has already been agreed to. And that's primarily a U.S. problem. That is a political problem for the United States to agree to substantial liberalization there. The second is the size of reduction in tariffs on agricultural products. And that's primarily a European or EU problem and the size of reductions on industrial products, that's maybe a G20 or developing country. And these are the three where they had hoped to have the broad negotiating modalities in place by the deadline of April 30th. And then the feeling was that once those three key uh, 
issues were uh, resolved in the sense of an agreement on how to negotiate them. Uh, there would be the need to further negotiate these other areas which are being held up by the failure to deal with those three key issues that I just described. Uh, at this, uh, a week ago when I sent the PowerPoint uh, presentation in, for, uh, it stopped here. Uh, and then something happened on Monday, uh, three days ago. Okay, so uh, let me go on. So this is a postscript, and it's another missed deadline, the deadline being uh, that by the 30th of April, uh, the negotiating modalities for those three key issues and the triangle of issues would have been settled. So last Monday, uh, the Director General addressed an, an informal heads of delegation meeting that included the following comments. It is clear that we will not be in a position to establish the modalities, agriculture, and the NAMA is the non-agricultural market access, i.e. industrial products, but it would also include non-agricultural raw materials, for example. Uh, by the end of April, therefore, I am not encouraging ministers to, to come to Geneva this week or next. Uh, you may have read that some of the ministers thought that was a good idea, and uh, Rob Portman did not, uh, and he's coming anyway partly to introduce his successor uh, uh, as head of STR to people in Geneva. Uh, then he mentions that now the deadline is the end of July. And the general thinking is that that is a real, honest to God, firm deadline because if they can't agree on the modalities for those three key issues, that triangle of issues, by the end of July, it's almost impossible to meet the timetable for finishing the round before the U.S. Negotiating Authority expires in, I think it's June or July, I think, of 2007. Uh, and finally, there should be no doubt that the game is here in Geneva in the Muffalafel Arena and not anywhere else. I assume what this refers to is the unhappiness on the part of a number of medium and smaller countries over the practice of holding many ministerials in other cities besides Geneva in which a, a small group of countries attempts to resolve the issues and then present them to the rest of the membership for endorsement. And on the 10th and 11th of March, there was a meeting in London of what's called the G6, which is Australia, Brazil, India, Japan, EU, and the US. And then in Rio, on the 31st of March and the 1st of April, there was a meeting that was just Brazil, US, EU, and LAMI. In each of those meetings, they tried to break the deadlock on that triangle of issues, and they failed in each case. But in each of those cases, there was a negative backlash, if you like, a reaction from many of the other countries in the WTO that these things were being done away from Geneva, away from the WTO, in secret, they didn't have an input, and so forth. So I think that's what he has in mind uh, there. Can I turn this off now? I'm, I'm finished. Thank you. Okay. Um, what I'd like to do very briefly, and since we're limited to 10 minutes each, and I assume I've used half of that already, uh, touch on two things. One is, what are the prospects for success? Uh, and I, I think that the prospects are actually very, very small, that the Doha, Doha round is going to achieve anything substantial. I, I don't think it'll break up. It's not going to be another Seattle or Cancun. But my guess is that the things that they agree to will be quite modest, They'll try to put a good face on it and so on, but that none of the major issues, in particular that triangle of key issues, is going to be resolved. Uh, 
the, uh, the basis for that argument is primarily political, uh, that the four or five major countries that would, who are crucial to a breakthrough on agriculture, the first two of those issues, are uh, the leaders are politically weakened. I mean, Bush is weak, Blair is weak, France is paralyzed, and Italy and Germany have coalition governments. Uh, in addition, the atmosphere in Europe uh, is still, to a degree, poisoned by the defeat of the draft constitution. Uh, so it's just not the kind of environment in which it's easy to imagine uh, the people who would need the political courage to move ahead, especially on agriculture for the U.S. and the EU, or high tariffs on the part of the developing countries, uh, to do it. Uh, an indication that I'm not alone in thinking this is I went, uh, rushed out and bought The Economist uh, for this week uh, when it was available Saturday to see what they had said. Now, they didn't know about what happened last Monday. Okay. Uh, but there was, so I looked at the table of contents, nothing on the Doha round, nothing on the WTO. So I hunted around, and there's a one sentence, two sentence reference, and an article. Uh, that has a, starts with a picture of George Bush. This talks mainly about Washington and talks about Portman's reassignment. And then in there, they say the Doha round is virtually dead. Uh, now, this is not from a publication that is an enemy of the WTO uh, or antagonistic towards the, the WTO. They've always been really good GATT and WTO supporters. And the only thing that I could find <coughs> in this week's issue of The Economist was that statement that it's virtually dead, and that's why Portman got reassigned. That's their hypothesis. Because why keep a talented person <coughs> like him tied up in something that doesn't have very good prospects? Uh, finally, what I'd like to just throw out, and I hope we have a chance to discuss this a bit more, uh, both uh, the current director general, well, the, the current director general of the WTO in the speech in India on the 6th of April said that the biggest loser from a failure of the Doha round would be the WTO itself. And in an article, I don't think it was a letter, I think it was an article on the op-ed page of the Financial Times a few days ago, uh, uh, Peter Sutherland and another man who were the co-heads of a European Employers Association said the same thing. Uh, what they said, let me just read that very quickly. The alternative, this is if there's a failure, is not the status quo. We believe that a failed WTO round will leave the trading system and invest, investment environment seriously damaged. The credibility of the multilateral trading system is at stake. And uh, what I want to put to you today is that I think that both of those are wrong. Uh, I think that the WTO system is so solid and, and, and has the institutional strength to withstand uh, either uh, a real or a cosmetic failure of the Doha round. Uh, countries have a whole lot of legal op obligations under the existing rules. The dispute settlement system is working well. The scope the countries have for putting in place a protectionist backlash to a failure of the Doha round is very, very limited. I know they can start abusing the anti-dumping regulations a bit more, but then that's going to trigger dispute settlement cases. So, on. so that I'm not saying that it'll be a healthy environment, but I think the principal cost of a Doha round failure is the foregone gains that could have been achieved if it was a success. But the idea that there's going to be 
that it, it will be a major wound to the WTO is simply wrong. So I'll leave it at that. Well, this conference has gone from upsetting to depressing. Here's uh, there's a lot of friction in the world. So um, I don't fundamentally disagree with, um, uh, with, with Richard in terms of the pessimism and, in fact, how, how uh, modest the outcome uh, of the Doha round is likely to be. Um, the Cancun ministerial ended in deadlock in 2003. The Hong Kong ministerial ended with a fig leaf of proclaimed success, but no deep substantive progress on key issues. The April 30th deadline for modalities has now been declared dead. Uh, I think the timeline set at Hong Kong for conclusion of the round by the end of this year is in big trouble. And this lack of progress is occurring in the context of the expiry of U.S. Trade Promotion Authority in July of next year. And so we see a lot of statements out there that the round may fail. Um, now, I want to caution taking those too seriously. I don't think that those statements are at all determinative. In recent decades, every round has had a purported crisis, often of several years, um, so that in the Tokyo round in the summer of 98 through the spring of 1979, there was a north-south deadlock that led to uh, uh, a now well-known cable between U.S. Ambassador Mike Smith to the Secretary of State declaring the untatization of the GATT, uh, the destruction of, of the GATT, uh, and the possible failure of the round. Yet, um, actually, just a few weeks after that cable was sent, the round closed and was considered a success. The Uruguay round um, was supposed to uh, have a midterm review in 1988 that ended in deadlock. The December 1990 closing ministerial ended in more deadlock. Newspapers and the trade rags were filled with predictions of crisis and failure, but of course in the end there was success. So declarations of crisis are part of the negotiating process and they in and of themselves do not mean failure. But nonetheless, um, uh, while the round may not fail, its outcome is likely to be very modest and may not be delivered in time. Um, compared to the uh, ambitions of U.S. and European trade policymakers and policy wonks in, say, 1999 for a millennium round, uh, the outcome looks, uh, if it happens, to be anemic. Um, environment doesn't seem like it's going to be dealt with very deeply. Labor, competition, investment are uh, off the table, uh, transparency isn't being dealt with deeply, zeroing of tariffs, uh, which was talked about, is not very likely, the complete elimination of agricultural subsidies is not very likely. Um, compared to the new issues opened up in the Uruguay round, compared to these ambitions, this looks like a modest round. So when House Ways and Means Chairman Thomas a few weeks ago said that the, Euro the Doha round will conclude on a whimpering note. Um, uh, I, I, I don't really take issue of that. The question I want to focus on is why. Um, I've, I've passed around a handout that sort of lays out six factors, three of which are essentially domestic and three of which are essentially international. I want to run through those. Um, the first, uh, and I'll run through the first three fairly quickly. The, the, the first is the increasing salience in advanced industrialized countries of the behind-the-border issues, which are the hardest to change. 
In most advanced industrialized countries, there are now significant trade constituencies that demand addressing things like services, investment, competition policy, labor, environment, um, and uh, concern with culture. Um, in referring to the EC 20 years ago, um, uh, Stanley Hoffman referred to uh, the process of, of uh, trade liberalization as peeling an artichoke. That is, you take off the outer leaves, you get to the heart of the matter, which is sovereignty and national character. I think that applies to where we are in the, in the uh, WTO today. Unlike border measures, which entail factor reallocation and the like, the kinds of issues that are being demanded by substantial constituencies in the advanced industrialized countries implicate um, the regulatory structure and capacity of the state, um, the industrial structure of the economy, um, questions of national character, ultimately the political structure of society, factors that are very difficult to change and very hard to bargain over. Um, a second constraint is the limits of state capacity and authority structures in developing countries. Now we talked about that a bit this morning, um, and I, I won't belabor it, but in the developing world, state authority and administrative institutions simply are lacking to make big progress on many issues. Um, you know, TRIPS really raised this in bold relief, right? We have mandated in TRIPS um, effective enforcement of intellectual property law. How do you mandate that, right? It's like mandating democracy or mandating development. It's essentially mandating rule of law. You can't have, you have, effective, to have effective enforcement of intellectual property law, you have to have rule of law, and that's uh, a very tricky uh, thing to develop. So we face this, this limit on um, administrative capacity uh, of the state in, in, in many levels. We talked about it this morning. I won't um, expand upon it here. Third, the greater complexity in managing domestic constituencies. Um, in short, more issues means more interests for negotiators to accommodate. Um, not just the goods sectors, not just uh, trade associations and labor unions, but environmentalists, consumer groups, intellectual property producers, service sectors, and the regulatory agencies and legislative oversight committees associated with them. And along with that, you need institutional paths to channel those interests and to intermediate them. And you need to build those. And those are in the process of being built, and in many countries have been built. Um, and at the WTO, they're continuing to be, be built. Um, uh, but um, they're not fully developed, and dealing with that level of complexity is a real challenge for the negotiators. I want to focus, though, on, on the international level and, and constraints on, on an outcome at the international level by talking about um, uh, three power shifts. It's often said that the developing countries are more powerful today in the WTO than they were in, in um, uh, certainly in the Uruguay round. Um, some people look at simply the number of developing countries and the proportion in the WTO, which was about half of GATT-CP's in the 50s, about 75% of GATT-CPs in the 70s, and make up nearly 90% of WTO members today. But I don't think that's a very good measure of, of their material bargaining power. Um, I think, in fact, that when one looks at, at, at what I think is a good measure for material bargaining power, there's currently been relatively little diffusion of material bargaining power in the WTO. The first best approximation of material bargaining power in the WTO, I believe, is is market size. Um, a lot of people use, say, proportion of world trade. I think that's very misguided. 
the potency of a threat to close a market or the promise to open it is what drives trade negotiations. It is the coin of the realm, market access. When we consider that, um, I did a very kludgy kind of rough um, figure that I've, I've passed around that I, I want to just very briefly explain. This is, this is um, GDP share, uh, that is uh, GDP by country uh, as a percentage of WTO GDP uh, over the last um, 60 years and then projected out to 2035. The data through 2004 is based on IMF and World Bank data. The data after that builds off of a, a Goldman Sachs um, model. It's highly speculative um, uh, and uncertain, it's subject to as many criticisms as you can think of. Uh, but it's, um, it's a plausible uh, uh, projection, I think. It's, it's, um, it's based on a fairly sophisticated model. It, it triangulates well with the Levine and Reynolds econometric model that explains average 30-year uh, uh, GDP growth. Um, it um, also uh, compares well to the IMF estimates of potential growth in various economies. Is that PPP? Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, this is based on uh, 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 growth as a function of um, employment, growth in capital, stock, and uh, total so factor per These are purchasing power parity numbers, or no? These are no. these are GDP. Um, uh, these are these are GDP numbers. World Bank GDP numbers. Uh, at what exchange rates? At converted IMF exchange rates. Okay. So um, it's rough. It's very rough, but it gives you a sense of what's been happening in terms of relative market size. And that's that's all I want. I'm not making a claim about how reliable this is, uh, particularly going into the future. But the point is that if if one looks at, say, 1948 to about 1970, the U.S. is clearly dominant in its bargaining power at the GATT, right? Which helps explain why it effectively wrote the GATT 1947 in consultation with Britain, which made up about another 10% of GATT GDP at the time, um, and was basically able to present that as a fait accompli to the um, other um, uh, contracting parties. Um, over time, the U.S. share declines, Europe is born, the European Union, European community is born, and grows so that by the 70s, what best describes governance at the WTO is, I, I would call it a hegemonic du duopoly, so that the Uruguay round is closed essentially by, and, and Dr. Supachai alluded to this uh, the other day, by um, the U.S. and European uh, Union getting together, deciding on a bundle uh, that was the outcome, and imposing it on the rest of the world by withdrawing from the old GATT, uh, creating a legally distinct agreement, but that was effectively the same, and thereby denying market access to any country that didn't join the entire Uruguay Round uh, package. Um, we're now going into a period of diffusion of power, but but if you look at the numbers here, it hasn't substantially set in. So I don't think that what's occurring here is fundamentally a shift in the material bargaining power uh, uh, of, of, uh, of, of countries yet. Um, I think that what we're seeing is, is, is really two shifts. The first is diminished U.S.-EU go-it-alone power. That is, 
it will be um, near, it would be nearly impossible to replicate what we did at the end of the Uruguay round in terms of exiting the institution and presenting others with a fait accompli. One very important reason for that is the expansion of U.S. and EU-centered preferential trade agreements. When the U.S. withdrew in, uh, in 1995, um, we didn't have these other MFN obligations or these better-than-MFN obligations to other countries. That now constrains us, right? We're either have concluded or are concluding 20 uh, FTAs with 24 countries, okay? Uh, and the EU faces an even bigger problem in that regard uh, with um, uh, uh, about uh, three dozen free trade agreements now and the conversion of LOME agreements into free trade agreements. Um, finally, there's been another power shift, which is the Lincoln pa linkage patterns and, co and coalitions. Um, it's very important to bundle uh, to cre in, in creating an effective coalition at the WTO to bundle um, uh, across issues. The U.S. and Europe did that in the Uruguay round. They have not done that yet here. Instead, what we've seen is the developing countries that did not bundle in the Uruguay round are bundling here. The G77 and China have taken a common position on vetoing certain issues from the agenda, supporting industrial country tariff cuts, ag subsidies cuts, aid for trade and access to medicines. The Africa group has bundled. Um, the newly exceeding group of countries in the G20 has done some bundling. Um, there has been, in short, a, bl a blowback or a backlash against, I think, the power play that is known as the single undertaking in the Uruguay round. And the developing countries are now unified enough to act as a veto player. So in conclusion, Multilateralism is, I think, facing a very tough period. We have shifted from hegemony 60 years ago to hegemonic duopoly towards something like a tripolar system now and are moving, I think, to a real multipolarity in the future. In the Uruguay round, decisions were made in the quad. Here, we're doing things like having Brazil, the U.S., and EU, or the G6 try to come together. Um, this structure, along with PTA proliferation, and domestic constraints is Bismarckian in its complexity and very hard to deal with. I asked provocatively in this little outline on this thing, are we uh, nearing the end of multilateralism? I, fa I frame that provocatively. Um, I don't think we are. Um, um, there, in the future, may be a convergence of interests as developing countries develop their interests uh, converge on ours. U.S. and EU-centered PTAs may, may create more similarity of interests in liberalization um, than we have now, and institutional in innovations, uh, developing countries developing capacity, the EU recovering from rejection of the Constitution, building new and more coherent mechanisms for policy making, possibility of a multi-speed WTO, all of these I think make it possible that in the future we'll have further, make it likely that in the future we'll have multilateral progress. So in conclusion, multilateralism is not dead, but it will evolve very slowly uh, and modestly because of these uh, constraints. Thank you. Oh. Thanks, uh, So my comments will be uh, much less well-formed than uh, those of Richard and Richard. Uh, but uh, in fact, they're just uh, sitting here in front of me on a couple of pieces of paper I, I uh, scrapped together. Uh, but hopefully what I'll try to do is think about uh, one uh, uh, issue that I think is an important aspect of the Doha round and uh, just kind of develop a few ideas that uh, maybe will be uh, interesting for further discussion. So what I was uh, trying to uh, think in my own mind was how to evaluate whether Doha is delivering as much as it can to LDCs 
And the way I would start thinking about that is probably how most of us uh, would start, and that is from the uh, view that the GATT and the WTO is effectively a bargaining forum uh, for solving the uh, member government problems. And so the question is, what are those problems? And in the economics literature, uh, there are basically two that have been identified in the formal economics literature. Uh, one is a domestic commitment problem. So it's the kind of thing that we uh, heard about a bit this morning uh, in the keynote address uh, in terms of Mexico. And that is a well-established uh, formal economics literature and, uh, and I think political science literature as well that, uh, that really what trade agreements are useful for is uh, giving an uh, external mechanism for helping you make domestic commitments. Okay, and fundamentally there's nothing uh, about an international aspect that is actually uh, key there. You could use uh, domestic uh, institutions to help you commit uh, if you had those domestic institutions, but if they're weak, then maybe a, uh, an external mechanism like a trade agreement could help. Uh, the second possibility that's been identified in the economics literature is formally uh, that trade agreements help governments solve what is inherently an international problem, and that is a terms of trade-driven prisoner's dilemma, uh, formally, and the idea effectively is that if, uh, if countries are big enough to affect exporter prices abroad through their protection choices, uh, then when they make those protection choices, they tend to depress those exporter prices, and those costs uh, are being borne by outsiders uh, that are not being accounted for when countries make their protection choices. So they uh, calculate the benefits on the margin and the costs on the margin. Not all the costs are being uh, accounted for, so they're going to tend to naturally do too much of that protection. And that is true, in fact, in our, in our economic models, our formal economic models, regardless of the underlying motives of the government. We don't need a free trade ideology. We could have political economy, all sorts of things. But ultimately, if I have the ability to affect uh, exporter prices abroad for those who are exporting into my market, then there's a terms of trade-driven prisoner's dilemma that develops, and that's an international inefficiency that can only be corrected through some kind of international negotiation or at least some kind of international coordination. Okay, and I think uh, I'm going to take the view here that probably most of what uh, the GATT and now the WTO is about is solving a terms of trade-driven prisoner's dilemma. And one way to think of that, just uh, concretely in terms of the Doha round, is if it really were mostly, if our negotiations were mostly about uh, trying to uh, help ourselves make commitments to our own private sectors, and in particular if that's what the LDCs were hoping to get out of the Doha round, uh, then they would really be focusing on how can we uh, offer up commitments that will be formally put into the WTO, and we're not really worried too much about what uh, Europe and the U.S. are doing, because it's not about uh, market access. It's really about helping us tie our hands. Okay, and that's pretty far away from what the negotiations seem to be. So at least at, at just that level alone, it's suggestive that really what's going on is uh, some type of attempt uh, to do what has traditionally been done, I think, in the GATT, and that is solve an international uh, problem as opposed to a commitment problem. Okay, that doesn't say that the GATT obligations don't solve commitment problems, too. There's some empirical work. Uh, there's lots of anecdotes that suggest that they can have that impact, but I think the, the primary uh, focus is probably uh, this, uh, this terms of trade driven prisoner's dilemma. Okay, so then my question becomes, if I take that route, how can Doha help uh, governments solve the international inefficiencies that most hurt LDCs? Okay, so that's what I want to think about in my, uh, in my brief comments 
is if we want to think about how the Doha round can most help LDCs, we've identified the problem, it's the international inefficiency, so our, our question simply is, how can Doha help solve the international efficiencies that most hurt the LDCs? And there, there's two types, and it's important to distinguish between the two. Uh, one is that there are international inefficiencies that are associated with the LDC policy choices themselves. Okay, and those would be the kinds of inefficiencies that are associated with developed country policies as well, uh, which in particular is on, on uh, the margin, I tend to overprotect and offer too little market access because in part, I'm not facing the costs of doing that because there's foreign exporters who are paying part of that cost. So the international inefficiencies there are associated with my own policy choices and that will tend to be true if I have enough uh, size in the markets that I'm operating in to actually affect uh, exporter prices. Okay, the second possibility is international inefficiencies that are associated with developed country policy choices in markets that are most important to LDCs. So even if all LDCs are small individually, uh, so they may not be in fact uh, introducing these kind of inefficiencies in their own choices, they may still suffer greatly from inefficiencies that are uh, associated with the developed country choices in agriculture, textiles, other markets that the developing countries would like to export into. So uh, if in fact the problem is the first one I mentioned, if we focus on the international inefficiencies that are associated with LDC policy choices themselves, then the traditional kind of reciprocal negotiations uh, between developing countries or developing and developed countries uh, are likely to provide the path for solving these problems, just as they have very, uh, very well, I think, uh, traditionally between developed countries. And perhaps one reason that developing countries have not seen the gains prior to the Doha round is because they've been exempted from the, from the uh, reciprocal demands of, uh, of negotiation. They've been said, you may sit on the sidelines and enjoy in some sense free ride from the, uh, from the developed country uh, negotiations. But there's a strong reason, a good reason, to expect that they wouldn't really be able to free ride very well. And just the simplest point is, if we really think that the GATT and now the WTO is a negotiating forum, and if we think it's a very successful one, well, most people would agree that it's built on small groups negotiating. It's not all 149 members in a room together figuring out what to do. It's two or three or four or five negotiating a deal and then extending that deal to everybody on an MFN basis. But if that's the case, and if there were large spillovers, large abilities of other countries to sit on the side and free ride, you wouldn't expect that kind of negotiation to work very well. Because any kind of negotiating forum, uh, if, you don't, if you can't internalize the benefits of your negotiations, you're not going to go very far. So just on that basis alone, it's suggestive that uh, if we thought that telling some countries like LDCs that they could sit on the sidelines and they'd get a lot out of the negotiations of the developed countries, uh, if that were really true, the GATT wouldn't have worked well. The GATT did work well for those developed countries, and that suggests by itself that there's probably reasons why they construct their negotiations so the developing countries aren't going to get much. So the first point then is that uh, to the extent that developing countries really are big enough to affect the export of prices and therefore have their own inefficiencies associated with their own uh, policy choices, they can gain a lot by coming to the table and actually fully uh, negotiating reciprocally as the developing countries do. The second possibility is that, well, they really are small and uh, individually. Even if together they're big, the, the key question is individually when they're making their unilateral decisions, are they affecting exporter prices? And if they're really too small to do that, then we have still the second possibility, and that is they still may 
be hurt very much by, uh, by uh, agriculture and textile protection in the developed countries, and that protection may be very inefficient from an international perspective because the uh, agriculture and uh, textile uh, importing countries, the US, EU, may be big enough to have big impacts on world uh, and exported prices and therefore may not be facing the full cost of what they're doing. So those protection levels may well be inefficiently high. And then the question for the GATT and the, Do and the WTO and now the Doha Round is how to figure out how to do, uh, how to uh, uh, get those kinds of levels of protection down for the LDCs if that's, if we're trying to help the LDCs. And here again, the theory is very useful I think because it says if that's the problem, then it suggests that you cannot ask LDCs to reciprocate if they're going to be gaining because ultimately if they are engaged in fully reciprocal negotiations, uh, they're only, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. It's, uh, it's relatively easy to argue uh, that they're not going to gain from uh, negotiations if they're small individually uh, and the problem is with the uh, inefficiencies associated with the big developed countries. That doesn't mean that they can't gain uh, from negotiations, but those negotiations are going to have to be non-reciprocal. Basically, the, uh, the developed countries are going to have to give up more in terms of market access relative to the developing countries in order for both sides to gain. So I'll just throw that out that to the extent that we think uh, that that's the problem, that it's really not a problem of uh, international efficiencies associated with developing country instruments, but rather with developed country, uh, then we really ought to be moving toward a non-reciprocal or maybe staying with a non-reciprocal approach to negotiations, but not one that is completely non-reciprocal. There has to be some liberalization on the part of developing countries. Whereas if we think developing countries are big enough to affect world markets, then they ought to be fully reciprocal. And of course, developing countries are different. Uh, Brazil is very different uh, from Malawi. There are lots of uh, gradations in between. And so a, a basic point is that it's very unlikely that, uh, that we should be treating uh, developing countries even within you know, two or three groups in uh, the same way. There's probably a wide range of treatment that uh, ought to be done in order to help developing countries. Okay, so I'll take one last minute to make one final point. Uh, if, uh, if in fact, and I'll just throw this out, if in fact uh, most developing countries are small, and so we're suggesting in that case that, uh, that in fact the inefficiencies aren't associated with their own policy choices, so that's not really what the trade agreements are, uh, trade negotiations are about, then that logic about basically not focusing on making them commit with their own border measures actually can be extended into their own internal measures. And I think that's a very provocative but interesting uh, possibility because one thing it suggests is uh, there, there's an argument, I think, for small, especially, and poor developing countries to be exempt from all commitments, including the uh, subsidy agreement and uh, all the commitments that they were supposed to tie into uh, for tying their internal measures and potentially the competition policy, the kind of uh, 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 new uh, Singapore issues that are being potentially negotiated in the Doha round. I think there's actually a potential logic for, uh, for making some exemptions in, in terms of uh, developing countries' uh, commitments with regard to internal measures as well. Okay, so I'll stop there. Thank you. Uh, coming as the last person to speak on the panel, uh, much of what I wanted to say have been said already. Uh, let me take up from what uh, uh, Richard Blackhurst uh, uh, left off in his remarks. Two, th two points he made that the prospects of success in uh, uh, concluding Doha round 
is uh, uh, small, very small, and uh, but uh, if it fails, uh, it's not a great disaster. The WTO system uh, is not going to be uh, going to unravel. So both of these points, uh, I agree with that the prospects uh, are small, and uh, uh, WTO system as uh, it is now probably uh, will not uh, disappear. But then the question one need to ask is that uh, if the uh, build-up of the Doha round as quote-unquote development round uh, had any, any substance to it, uh, now that part of it is not going to be delivered if the Doha prospects are small. Now, was there much, pro uh, the, much in that build-up in any way? Uh, in my view, uh, calling Doha round as a development round was a colossal mistake. Uh, first of all, any trade liberalization by definition uh, has to be helpful for developing countries in that sense. Whether a round was called a development round or not, uh, it, had a, it would have had a development impact. By calling it a development round, it brought in two unfortunate uh, uh, implications. One that if only Doha was successful, development problem is going to be solved. That is a, that's a silly uh, notion, but that sort of an expectation has been created by calling it a development round. The second thing is it created also, uh, in the minds of developing countries, some of the counterproductive things that uh, they have been accorded in the previous rounds of negotiations such as special and differential treatment, GSP, etc. Those things uh, uh, now have, have taken on even more of an entitlement character. And so as a, if you are meaning a development round, then these uh, are counterproductive measures uh, not only have to be preserved, but also any liberalization that might come against the, the so-called erosion of preferences, GSP, etc., uh, there is an automatic resistance from those developing countries which are enjoying this, uh, quote-unquote, enjoying uh, this uh, uh, GSP. So from that perspective, uh, calling it a, a development round was, was a colossal mistake. But nonetheless, there was a reason for calling it that, and that goes back to the Uruguay round. So if you look at Uruguay round, I would characterize two dimensions of it. One is the unfortunate dimension. The unfortunate dimension is expanding. Uh, partly, Uruguay round is the first round which had this single undertaking business. Previous rounds did not have the single undertaking. And that uh, is, in my view, was a bad idea. Second, that meant the, uh, the things that did not quite relate to uh, border uh, measures and trade, such as uh, trips in particular, uh, uh, was brought into the, uh, into, the, uh, into the WTO. Not only that, so trips was brought in along with a quote-unquote strengthening of the dispute settlement mechanism relative to GATT which essentially meant it made it into a legalistic uh, system relative to a largely political system that was in place in the GATT, which again is an unfortunate dimension in my view. So, and you had GATTs, which is, which is a, 
some fortunate elements, some unfortunate elements. Uh, trips in an unmitigated disaster from the perspective of developing countries, the, the dispute settlement system is also not exactly a great, uh, a great uh, uh, achievement from the perspective of so. And they undertook uh, these commitments in return for what was I would have called as of then unfinished business. One, namely the egregious multi-fiber arrangement, which uh, uh, was a violation of principles GATT, every principle of GATT you can imagine, uh, MFA violates. And uh, the, Europe, the Uruguay round uh, faced it out. So that was the plus element of the Uruguay round in the unfinished business. Now, the other part of the unfinished business, again, uh, is agriculture. Uruguay Round didn't go very far in agriculture. Agricultural liberalization uh, uh, was uh, cosmetic. Not much uh, happened. Uh, on, on the one hand, MFA phase-out was all backloaded, so uh, immediate benefits to the developing countries was, uh, many of the developing countries was limited, and they had to undertake all these uh, uh, tri trips uh, and other uh, uh, things. So on balance, developing countries got very little from the Uruguay round, uh, by, uh, if you look at it that way. And so it made sense to say we are going to, and so this brought in the implementation issues as part of the uh, uh, Doha round and so on. So one might think there is a development dimension in these terms. If you think that way, then what you would be focusing on is looking at the, uh, is there a way to get out the unfortunate elements from the uh, WTO? Perhaps it's dead. You can't remove trips. You can't change the dispute settlement back to uh, GATT. Now, can you change the rules uh, 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 in some way? Now, this is where uh, the, this uh, option, the opting out, and going into the regional uh, uh, agreements on the part of uh, both developing and developed countries comes in. If you look at the, uh, the WTO rules system, there is a committee on regional agreements. Now, to presumably look at the conformity of any proposed regional preferential trade agreement with Article 24 of GATT. Now, right from day one, this particular system, even the GATT days, has not delivered. It has not yet pronounced the conformity of European uh, common market with the, con uh, with the GATT rules. So that idiocy of uh, Article 24 and pretending that uh, uh, we are going to uh, pronounce on the conformity of regional trade agreement, that continues. So if we want to reform the uh, uh, rule system, now, I have proposed a number of times before a simple rule. Anybody can agree on any kind of preferential trade agreement, but with a sunset clause. Within five years, any preferences should be automatically extended on an MFN basis to every member uh, of the WTO. So this could at least slow down the movement for regional trade agreements, if not uh, preferential trade agreement, if not kill them. The second thing, unfortunate thing, is developing countries, if they don't uh, participate effectively in the multilateral process and they're forced into in the bilateral or regional process, they are going to lose much more 
in the uh, in the regional processes than they would uh, in the uh, uh, multilateral process if it grows slowly. For example, already the U.S. has pushed TRIPS plus in uh, many of its regional trade agreements. Second, labor standards, which the developing countries have successfully kept out of the WTO, have crept in as part of a central part of the agreement. Unlike NAFTA, which was a side agreement, labor issues in the Jordan, U.S. Jordan, uh, the free trade agreement, the uh, uh, labor standard is part of the central part of the agreement. So the developing countries will willy-nilly end up uh, uh, giving up much more uh, that is not in their interest in a regional uh, process than they would be in the multilateral process. And so there again, so this seems to me uh, 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 the um, reform of the rules and getting rid of anti-dumping once and for all from the GATT system uh, would, be a, would be a good thing because it has no economic rationale, whatever, and it is the preferred means of protection for any protectionist anywhere. The largest user now is India uh, in the WTO system. It's not only developing countries the, in the anti-dumping. So rules reform would be better. Then also negotiation. This notion of you agree on the framework and then go on modalities and then go on uh, commitment, this drags on. But if we were to think the other way, this is where we want to end up with in terms of liberalization in various sectors and what is the, uh, the um, path from here to there rather than these complex processes. And we all know this formula thing is also not very meaningful. John Wally did a paper long ago looking at the formula pr proposed by the U.S. That doesn't maximize U.S. welfare. The formulas proposed by EU didn't maximize EU welfare. It had no rationale or logic in any way. So you are negotiating about modalities whose effect you don't know uh, ultimately. And so this kind of a negotiating process is silly. And uh, there, if we can move that uh, in some way to a better, uh, better means, that would be good. Now, finally, let me conclude with a remark, but I, uh, I disagree with Richard Steinberg on his recapitulation of the GATT uh, history. If you go back, uh, U.S. took the initiative, certainly, but the first 23 uh, CPs of GATT, 11 of them were developing countries. And uh, if you go to the Havana Conference, uh, which passed the ITO chap uh, the charter, that again, a large number of developing countries participated and agreed on the ITO Charter. It is U.S. that didn't ratify ITO Charter, not uh, uh, the developing countries. And so to say that the hegemon uh, the, got the agreement and they imposed it on others in the early part of the GATT history, that wouldn't be correct. What is correct, in my view, is the developing countries abandoned GATT and participating in GATT and moved on to uh, rabble-rousing at uh, UNCTAD uh, from 1964 on. So that is a major thing, and they came back only in 1979 Tokyo round to participate in any significant way. So what for developing countries the good thing is to push the multilateral process by willing to undertake uh, uh, the negotiations on uh, reciprocal basis and uh, uh, 
Bob Steiger's remarks, I would, that's his last sentence I'm going to use, this uh, uh, to say, uh, I would put the uh, addressing differential capacities of developing countries, etc. Uh, I would address it not by uh, having different rules for developed and developing countries or different uh, processes for developing and developed countries, but in terms of time frame. So agree on common rules. Let's say uh, the all manufactured trade is going to be free. Suppose we agree, that's the end point we reach. If the developed countries, you give a five-year time horizon to reach it, some developing countries may be given 10-year time horizon, and other developing countries may be given a 15-year time horizon. But agree, once and for all, that this is the end point we want to be. So rules and commitments you agree on. Time frame, there may be a limit, uh, the uh, flexibility uh, to take account of the developing country differences. But if you give, give in in terms of rules, different rules for different members, that's that will kill the system. Thank you. Thanks very much. <laughs> I would prefer actually taking a couple of questions okay. from, the, from the floor, and then maybe we can uh, go back to uh, I just wanted to add to something. I wasn't going to attack. <laughs> Okay, Tian. Um, I just I just want to make an observation. It's sort of interesting. Um, you you know, the, the, in the history of the of the GATT, you're probably right that it was politicians who did the first iteration, and you, you, and the second iteration was lawyers. But I'm a little nervous if the third iteration is economists because I'm not sure <laughs> that economists, you know, thinking about the end state is going to get us there because it, it, you know because I think everyone had a uh, the, the problems are really, are really, really uh, complex, and I'm not sure moving to the end state is, is how we're going to get there. But let me just make a couple of comments about things that I agree on and things that I'm, I'm not so sure about, um, possibly where to go. First thing, I, Tiana, you, you're right. The problem with the agreement when we started from, from the very earliest was not that the uh, developing world wasn't there, but it was probably, you know, based on, on, on the way Bob was thinking about it, if you're going to negotiate based on principal supplier, uh, um, using principal supplier rules, then, then there was no place at the table of a developing country. So reciprocity is the, the basis. It was sort of thinking about a, um, a prisoner's dilemma situation, just like Bob spelled out. But there's no way in that story, at least the initial, your initial story, that you're going to have the, the developing world there. So consciously or not, they, they, were, there was no, they had no interest in being there. Um, I don't know if the ITO had actually existed, whether they'd be in better shape maybe, but whatever. Um, I think, I think, though, that where we have to go now is not worry about the whole institution falling apart. I agree. I, you know, the, the RAM might fail and the GATT WTO is still going to be there. But thinking about remediation, like there was, we had an idea yesterday that when uh, Superchai was here that we talked about at lunch that I think we th little things like this we can think about. So the developing world has no market power. And again, this follows your, your notion that they're not going to be able to set the world prices for very many commodities. They're in this kind of residual category. Um, and they can't even use the rules we have now because the notion of retaliation you know, hurts them worse than it hurts the, the, the country that needs to be retaliated against. They have, they have no market power. Why can't we take retaliation, you know, sell retaliation rights? So if a, if a country gets a, 
uh, has the ability to retaliate, why can't they give it away to someone else who could actually, it becomes a good, the way we, you don't want to auction it, you could actually sell it, like a pollution, right, and let someone else then retaliate. In which case, the rules, the, you know, we have, this is to say that there are ways we can use the rules so that the developing world can get what they want without actually fundamentally like, jumping to something like you say, everyone agrees to opening it up. So, so that's, that's what I think we need to consider. I wish the panel would consider, like, really things that we can do that, that, are, that are less, that within the ways we think about the world, um, that actually would get us forward to get the developing world, get the developed world to, to do what you, you want them to do. Yeah. I have uh, two quick remarks and uh, questions that to the speakers, whoever wants can pick them up. Um, the first is mostly related to this question whether developing countries do or do not have market power. For one, the agricultural peace clause ran out. Um, that means the WTO would now be a forum for developing countries to um, slap the developed countries in the face for what they're abusing their powers for. It's not happened much. I think it ran out end of 2003, but I might be wrong on the date. Um, so what holds the developing countries back in, from jointly exercising their market power, their negotiation power in this part? Then, uh, so that would say that there's a distinction between market power and negotiation power we might want to make. Um, and the other issue is they might actually do, indeed have market power. If you hear all the talk about why oil prices rise, Part of it is uh, China's demand. If you ask why do the minerals for the first time and, and, and other raw materials increase in price uh, in for the last three or four years, that's been true. China is being named and other developing countries too. So maybe the developing world should ask itself how to get aligned with China. I know they have very different interests from, say, India and Brazil. Um, but there is, I think, a lot of leeway for developing countries to rethink their position. And... Um, I'm not sure we should upfront assume they have no market power. Just want to put in a, a brief kind word for TRIPS. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and it's not that TRIPS on its own merits uh, is, is particularly appealing. But, I mean, everyone is worried about trying to get to an agreement that gives things to the developing world. It's not clear that the developed world is willing to do that as a donation. Uh, so the, the developing world needs to be able to give something uh, as a quid pro quo, probably, in order to get a deal that is beneficial to the developing world, however you see the benefits flowing. And TRIPS was, was that thing in the last round. Uh, it's not clear to me that this round has that thing in it that the developing countries can give in order to get something back. So, you know, assuming that it has to be a, a bargain that raises everyone's political welfare, uh, what creates the core of this bargaining game? What, is, what do the developing countries give uh, in this round? Is there something there? Yeah, well, it's very refreshing to hear uh, an economist, uh, Alan, uh, talk about um, you know uh, uh, political welfare because I think a lot of the conversation in the last hour has been uh, talking at cross purposes with uh, economists talking about efficiency uh, gains and, and, and prescriptions for that and um, uh, 
myself to some degree, Richard, talking about what's politically sustainable, right? So that um, the idea of no reciprocity, for example, you know, is politically a non-starter. Um, the idea of the end of anti-dumping or the um, sunsetting of PTAs or um, not adding the so-called non-trade issues to the round, political non-starter. I mean, uh, there's got to be, the United States has to get something and Europe has to get something out of this uh, round, which is why I actually agree with TN on the problem with the setup of the round and, and think of it as a development round and taking off the agenda all sorts of issues that uh, could have been a source of, of uh, perceived gain uh, in Washington um, and, and in Brussels. Um, uh, I, 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 I don't want to react to two points. Um, Tien's point about, um, I never said the developing countries weren't there. Right? They were there. Formally, they were there. Right? But the first draft of the Havana Charter was, was written by the United States, and there were very few changes to it. And it reflects our system, the anti-dumping, the, the, the CVD, the carve-out for agriculture. It, you know, it's, it's all there at the beginning and reflects, uh, reflected our interests. Finally, on this underutilization of the uh, expiry of the peace clause, um, I'll just address it very briefly. We'll talk about it more um, in the hallway. But, um, um, you know, first, the U.S. and EU have put pressure on the developing countries not to bring cases. Um, Australia was going to bring some cases, but we said, look, if we're going to do a free trade agreement with you, you can't bring any cases. Um, uh, uh, Europe, the European Union has said we'll negotiate or we'll litigate on agriculture, but we won't do both. So that's sort of one set of issues. And the other has to do with the organization of interest to litigate in the developing world, where... It's actually the petitioning sector is, has to pay the cost of actually litigating WTO cases in many developing countries. And the problem with that is, in the first place, um, the lack of organization of those sectors. They're not organized into trade associations uh, free, often uh, as well as they are in the North, number one. And number two is the problem of who pays the cost of litigation if the U.S. or Europe uh, simply don't comply and they say, hit us with your retaliation. Uh, the answer is that the petitioning sector has paid the cost of the litigation, even if there's a like, you know, expected uh, 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 value of success, right? It's diminished by the fact that if we don't comply, some other sector gets the so-called benefit of the retaliation. So uh, those are two hypotheses. Just a couple of points. What I, when I, after Tien finished and I, I wanted to add one thing that he said, uh, I agree very much that uh, having it called the Doha Development Round uh, was a real mistake. Uh, I heard a different story about how that happened. Uh, I heard that at the uh, final, or near the final stages in Doha, uh, that Mike Moore, through that additional word into the title, without discussing it with anyone. That's it just it happened that way. Huh? Uh, for the reasons he mentioned, I think it was a very serious mistake. I would add a third one, and that is that if you imagine that you're uh, a member of the U.S. Congress and, and you're trying to decide how to vote on a, the Doha package 
and you've got a lot of trouble at home because you've got subsidized farmers in your district or whatever, I would think it wouldn't help that you were being asked to approve the Doha development round because it sounds like you know, it's something that's packaged for developing countries and not something that is in the self-interest of the United States or whatever to, to pass it. So there's that political economy dimension. It's part of the more general problem that a lot of people in the world outside the trade community, and, and I think and here we're mostly the trade community, a lot of people in the world outside the trade community don't like to accept the fact that the WTO is a trade institution full stop. It's not a development institution. That's what the bank and the fund do. Now, if the... Not fund the bank, actually. Well, okay. All right. It's what the bank is supposed to do. Now, if, if the bank wants to say that there are implementation problems in developing countries as a result of a WTO round, and they're going to provide technical assistance to developing countries to cope with the implementation, fine. You know, there, there isn't that complete compartmentalization. But just like it's not an environment organization, just like it's not going to take over the ILO's functions, uh, it, um, uh, it's not a, a development institution. Uh, very briefly, when I was talking about the strength of the WTO to withstand, or the ability of the WTO to withstand the failure of the round, uh, in which everyone in the room seems to be, who's commented, is, is not uncomfortable with that, I would just add that another, in addition to it being a rules-based system, uh, with a functioning, well-functioning dispute settlement system, there's also the interest of multinational firms and having a smoothly functioning international trading system, a rules-based trading system, and those firms have political clout. Now, maybe not enough to get the Doha round a success, but I would imagine that they would be uh, sort of actively organized by any major attempt to go backwards. Uh, finally, uh, now, I would agree with Richard's point about uh, the political reality of some of the things that have been mentioned. I would just add Judy's idea of auctioning the right to retaliate. Uh, I think that some of the things you said, but also some of the things that Tian said, that if we were in a pit in a larger room and there were uh, Geneva-based delegates sitting around, that a lot of them would have just got up and left. They would have felt that it was so out of touch with the world that they live in. Now, it could be they're wrong, you know, and, and, and you know, the fact that we would bring services into the uh, GATT world, if you had proposed that in 1960, they would have got up and left. Okay, but in fact, we got it. So, but it, it's a question of getting, you know, too far ahead of, of the curve. Yeah. Okay, uh, a couple things. One, uh, on this development round idea, I actually think, um, I mean, I think there is a way, I think there's a legitimate way to have a development round that uh, takes into account, I think, what Richard uh, Steinberg was saying, uh, that ultimately, if, if there's not something in it for the developed countries, they're not going to do it, and that should be true for everybody. It's a negotiating forum. But if the idea of the development round is to identify an important set of countries, developing countries who are members, who somehow the existing rules of the negotiating forum are not working for them, then everyone can gain from fixing that because if there are inefficiencies that have not been corrected yet, those everyone will gain. It's not that, the, you know, that, that they will be the only gainers because once you increase the size of the pie, you can split it up any way you want. So I actually think the logic of a development round is, is sound if we identify key features of the existing WTO that 
are not working for developing countries. And on that, uh, you know, what Judy raised, uh, I mean, there's a proposal. The Mexican proposal proposes exactly this. So it's not out to lunch. I mean, it may be that it ultimately isn't adopted, but the Doha Round Mexican proposal on the reforms of the DSP, one of their, uh, of their proposals is to make retaliation rights tradable. And, and in fact, there's a long history in the Kennedy round, the developing countries asked to uh, be able to form uh, a retaliation union. And uh, they were, they were uh, dumped, you know, they were shut down by the developed countries and that probably will be what happens in the Doha round. But, you know, if we were, that's why I think, you know, if as a world we were really serious about uh, helping the developing countries to get more out of the, uh, of, the, of the WTO and thereby all gaining because ultimately we can share in those uh, gains of negotiation, then that kind of proposal, it may be a bad proposal, but it, that's what should be seriously uh, talked about. Uh, you know, there, I think there are legitimate arguments on both sides why it might actually be uh, bad for the WTO to have tradable retaliation rights, but, it, but it's, I think that's the kind of thing that ought to actually be uh, you know, clearly looked at. Um, on, the, on Mark's uh, question, uh, you know, I think that's a very good question, and you're, I think you're right to say it's not obvious that developing countries are small, and, uh, and two reasons. One is uh, that they could be large in regional markets, and that's all that matters. As long as there's some exporter out there, it may be the Argentinian exporter who exports to Brazil, as long as I'm big enough to affect those exporter prices, there are inefficiencies that are going to be created by my unilateral choices. So I don't have to be big on world markets. I can be big in a regional market, and the, the logic kicks in. And then secondly, there is a paper, a recent paper, uh, by uh, three researchers, Broda, Lamau, and Weinstein, that actually goes out and tries to estimate the trade elasticities, which are the, if these trade elasticities are infinite, then these are small countries if they're uh, positive, and finite, then they are large countries in our traditional measures, and they do this for, uh, I think, 19 developing countries that have uh, joined the WTO uh, since the uh, creation of the WTO, and they actually find, uh, even for smaller countries, they find substantial uh, uh, trade elasticities, and then they link those trade elasticities to their uh, tariff choices. So there's some interesting, you know, empirical evidence beginning to emerge on exactly this question of are developing countries uh, large in world markets. Uh, and then two other quick things. One that uh, TN mentioned about anti-dumping, uh, and I think that's an interesting one. And what, you know, for me, uh, I think anti-dumping is a good example of why the the GATT and WTO um, view of reciprocity is such a powerful. Uh, tool for handling uh, difficulties because of all the, I think it's true, of all the uh, actions that a country can take uh, legally in the WTO and in GAP before it, uh, anti-dumping and countervailing duty is the one action that is unilateral. That, in other words, if I do it legally, I can unilaterally raise my tariff against a dumping firm or a subsidizing government, and that does not create a right of, of, uh, of uh, compensation or retaliation. And it's interesting because that, if you were you're thinking of that as an economist and thinking what are the incentives then of trying to game the system and do as many anti-dumping and countervailing things as I can, well, they'll be huge because it's my one window to do unilateral actions and get away with it. Whereas if I do a safeguard or I do an Article 28 renegotiation, it always ultimately creates a right of retaliation or compensation. 
And one interpretation is that reciprocity type of rule is a good uh, incentive or incentivizer, keeping us uh, kind of honest in the uh, world trading system. And that is in some sense a, the problem with anti-dumping is it's unilateral. And if, it, if there were, you know, absent taking it away, maybe what we should be doing is introducing the reciprocity uh, principle into anti-dumping. So if I do an anti-dumping duty, it creates a right of compensation for the, uh, for the, for the firm. That kind of thing might be a middle ground to what... Uh, TN was suggesting, which was to, to uh, deal, you know, kill it completely. Uh, okay, let me stop there. So quickly, uh, I agree with what uh, uh, Bob just said about anti-dumping. Uh, I, what I had in mind, precisely uh, the unilateral nature of anti-dumping, we already have safeguards, and if there are any weaknesses in safeguards, you could strengthen uh, the safeguards uh, procedures and get rid of anti-dumping as a means for uh, addressing whatever is presumed to be the problem arising from surges in uh, imports. Now, I want to, uh, two points. One, uh, the uh, uh, auctioning of uh, rights to retaliation. That has been around, as Bob said, for quite a while. It's not a new, new, new idea. But uh, there is another uh, alternative. That is to say, multilateralize the sanctions. And uh, there is a proposal, I think, not you, I think Petros has made, and all that, you create an office of public prosecutor, so to speak, within the WTO. And so not wait for an individual country to bring a complaint against a violation. So the prosecutor can identify uh, whether violations of the GATT rules have taken place and bring, up, bring out a case before dispute settlement and along with that, if you have a multilateralizing the sanction punishment, it's not only the affected country, but the whole uh, body, since it is a violation of rules, is, uh, uh, will engage in collective, collective action against the violator. That may be, that, that's another strengthening of the dispute settlement system. Uh, if you want to retain the present one, that's where uh, uh, I would go. And the, lastly, my point about uh, going back to the history of GATT uh, is not simply uh, not to uh, deny that the draft came from the United States or the United States had a l large influence. But the point is, unfortunately, if you read the positions of developing countries, take India, for example, what India said in the negotiations in 1947 or in the uh, 1948 Havana meetings and what India has been saying all along and, and until the Uruguay round, you would find the same uh, thing being said by India. So uh, the, there's no change uh, in any uh, the perception of, uh, uh, and that is the unfortunate thing. The one thing that changed, the, you see, you know very well, in the Uruguay round, you had G10, which had Brazil and India, G40 and so on and so forth. The G10 eventually collapsed. Brazil folded, and then the last minute India folded about a few hours before the conclusion of the round. This time it is different. Why? Two things. One, China is part of the G20. Second, both India and Brazil now see a greater interest in having, having a, a, a liberal trading system that is to their own benefit. So they are greater, uh, uh, greater stake in this. They see a greater stake in the system than they had seen all along. So there is a difference 
between developing country participation, at least some of the major developing country participation now and throughout the throughout the history of uh, history of GATT. On uh, Al's question, it seems to me there is quite a bit of to give on the uh, on the NAMA non-agricultural ma market access on the part of developing countries, and that should be reasonably reasonably uh, sort of a reciprocal. Uh, deal to be made on that ground. Go, developed countries go a lo long way on the uh, agricultural areas and rules areas, and the developing countries go a long way on the non-agricultural market access. Yeah, it's a very brief clarification. Bob, earlier you were talking about LDCs and what the round might do for LDCs, and then in your last comment you were talking about developing countries. And the thing is, in Geneva, and I don't know how widely this is known outside Geneva, but in Geneva now, the LDC, and this includes the WTO, LDCs are least developed countries. Okay, so uh, I think you were talking about developing countries in general all the way through. Uh, finally, uh, I never thought I'd be in the position of saying something good about anti-dumping. And, and I'm, not sure that, <laughs> I'm not sure that I even agree with what I'm going to say, but just to throw out for thought. There is an argument among the kind of people that most of us in the room would agree with that, in fact, it's a, useless, a useful safety valve. Uh, that the protectionist pressure is always going to be there, and you know, if you close they off that valve, then it's going to pop up somewhere else. Uh, I'm not sure that I believe that or how useful it is, but uh, you know, that's an argument that's been made. Okay, I think we can uh, here and go uh, to lunch. Um, the preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.